assembled together for a phase of our worship that is authorized or the only ritual authorized in the name of Jesus Christ. It is a ritual that has a great significance since the Lord told us that the purpose is to remember him. Hence the command, do this in remembrance of me. So, when we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ gave himself on our behalf so that we may belong to him. So that in a sense, the bread signifies that we belong to the church of Christ and the body offered was so we have eternal life. When we celebrate the cup, we also celebrate him, his death. But in the same time, we are sharing in the blessing of the death of Christ on the cross that includes our forgiveness of sins. So when we celebrate this, we are actually testifying that we are believers in Christ. Now, if you are not a believer and you partake of it, it means nothing. But if you are a believer, it means a whole lot. That you also testify that you are looking forward one day to be with him or for him to come back. It is a serious undertaking that there is a warning. If uh, anyone decides it's a matter of bread and juice, I'm going to do it, don't matter, I just I do it. Well, the problem is this when you take that approach, you are endangering yourself both spiritually and physically. This is why we have the warning for whoever or whenever you eat of this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judge ourselves, we will not come under judgment. So, here's the thing. The Corinthians, some of them, thought it was just a juke mat. It's a ritual. And they went through it. Some went home, got sick. Some went home and died. That is when God is... See, when God establishes something new, He gives that impact. Now, that doesn't mean that some are not dying today. Or that some are not getting sick. Because they think this is just a juke matter. You can take it any way you want. No. It is a high celebration that recognizes what Christ did for us on the cross. So, 
in order not to be guilty of the body and blood, the way you do that is you examine yourself. See if there's any sin that you've picked up during the break, for example, and examine your soul to ensure that there's no sin that dominates when you partake of this. To do that, we give you a few minutes to reflect and judge yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege given to us to obey the instruction of your Son to do this in remembrance of him. We recognize that the mind cannot perceive all you do for us. So we request that the Holy Spirit will help us as we celebrate the body of Christ, the representation of his body in such a way that we'll honor and glorify him. We request this in Christ's name. Amen. You know the routine? Just take up the top part and bring out the wafer. In the night that the Lord was betrayed, he took the bread. After offering thanks, says, eat this, this represents my body. For again, thank you. As we begin to celebrate the cup, we also pray that you enable us to continue to focus on your son. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen. So I give you a few minutes to ponder before we celebrate the cup. Okay, you bring out, get the cup. 
In the same fashion, I log to the cup and say, drink this, all of you. If you would, take a hymnal and stand and we'll sing number 186, The Old Rugged Cross.
in the first session, we reviewed the message of First Corinthians 10, verses 5 to 13 that we've been studying, which is the enjoyment of God's blessings under a good spiritual leader will not shield you from his judgment if you displease him. So, we looked at the examples or results of Israel's uh, evil desire because we are born to avoid them. So the first one was idolatry. The second one, sexual immorality. And the third is constantly doubting of God's power and his faithfulness to provide for Israel. That is, they put the Lord to the test. So we are told not to put the Lord to the test. In 1 Corinthians 10, 9, so he said, we should not test the Lord as some of them did. So we ask, because of the information given in the scripture, when is it right or correct to test the Lord? Now the answer required us to look at some examples, either where God invited or people tested him. So, with that, we looked at the example of Gideon, who requested for miracles that God granted him without being angry. And we say that there were some reasons that God probably wasn't angry with him. Part uh, Part of it, of course, he pleaded God not to be angry with him before he did a second test. But then we say that probably it's because God understood and wanted him to apply the principle that in order to confirm truth, you need two independent witnesses. And that is one reason God may have uh, allowed him to go ahead and test him the second time because one test wasn't enough to establish that this is entirely what God wants from him. So we looked at the fact that uh, there was a king, Ahaz, that God actually asked for his, uh, him to request a sign from him, but he said he would not put a lot to the test. And we said that sounded good, except that that was ingenious, because he's already made up his mind what he wants to do, and he's just going through the motion and said, no, I don't want to test the Lord. But, again, that was a case where God actually said, the person asked for a sign, but he did not. Now, so we also looked at uh, God's invitation to test him through Titan of Israel, given in Malachi three times, which I expanded a little bit, uh, that that is a favorite of preachers that they used to say, you must tight. And I went through to show you uh, that there's at least one argument you should always put forth to a person to let them know fighting is not the Christian way of giving. And that one argument is the fact that there is a change in priesthood. That's the argument. The, the change in priesthood went from the Levitical to the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
everything that uses worship under Levitical priesthood could not transfer to us as Christians who are under the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And I gave you a, a passage of Hebrews 7 verse 12 to confirm that. Now after these examples, then we consider, that we consider we then gave the answer that when we taste the Lord as an expression of faith and obedience, that is the right way to taste Him. However, we caution that we must not uh, taste God by doing things foolishly or and expecting to deliver us. In other words, that would be wrong to taste the Lord by doing something that's uncalled for and then expect him to prove himself or in one way to expect him to do something that we have been faced or that we're trying to do because we're foolish. We don't run into towards danger and say, well, the Lord is going to uh, deliver us because he promised to protect us. So in demonstrating that truth, we refer to the testing of the Lord Jesus by Satan when he told him to kind of fly off from the top of a uh, the, uh, the temple by quoting the scripture that he, God her after her said he will not be hurt. But the Lord Jesus Christ counter said, No, it's the same scripture you are quoting um, t- tells us that you should not taste the Lord. And that's one of the reasons I mentioned that there are a whole lot of Christians, they can quote the Bible. But usually, not many of them can actually quote it in any context. Because they always take it out of the context. And make it say what they want it to say. But that's not the, when God gives us something in the word he has one meaning. He may have several applications but there's only one meaning. And so we indicated then that uh, we should be careful that uh, we do not quote the Bible or test the Lord to do something that we know is foolish. And we also say that we should be careful that we are not the one testing him. Uh, as a routine of our lives but he can do that and he does and so we gave you three uh, reasons that the Lord tests us one of them is to purify us uh, by way of his suffering he will test you through suffering to see uh, what you made up spiritually the second way was to prove our obedience and the third one is to prove that we love him and it is with that third one that we actually ended because we cited a passage of Deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 through 3 and that's why we begin with the second session. It reads, If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place and he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart 
and with all your soul. So the Lord indicate that he may grant miracles through a prophet whose message will be false to test if the Israelites love him so that they will reject any enticement into idolatry. Now the same test may be going on today through some who perform miracles where their message about Christ is wrong or their teaching of the word of God does not comply with sound truth. The details will be uh, whether one will be impressed with miracles that a person ignores God's truth. So anyway, the point is that God has the prerogative to test us. But not the other way around. That is, it's not for us to routinely put him to the test in a wrong way as we've already uh, discussed. Now we have really then answered the question of when it is correct to test the Lord. However, there is one more issue that we should consider. It is how the failure of Israel in testing Christ applies to the Corinthians and so to all of us. In that instruction of 1 Corinthians 10, 9, we say, we should not test the Lord. We're looking at how does that apply to the Corinthians and so to us. Now, some of the Corinthians were involved in eating food sacrificed to idols in pagan temples. And so that, that exposes them to the possibility of sexual immorality. Now their conduct is tantamount to testing the Lord's patience to see how far they could go without, uh, with that kind of conduct. So anyway, the Corinthians are to stop such practices or any other practice that exposes them to idolatry and sexual immorality. For us, Testing the Lord will involve living a lifestyle that is incompatible with His Word, with the belief that nothing will happen to us because we are secured in our salvation. That will be testing Him. Now, such an attitude will, of course, cause all kinds of problems for us. So, as I'm saying, it's whenever you say, okay, I can do what I want to do. After all, I'm saved. And my salvation is secured. You are testing the Lord. Again, such an attitude, as we look at it, or from whichever way we look at it, that is something that we should avoid. And that is so that we do not be like the Israelites who they went around, they did all kinds of things in order to test the Lord. So in any event, we should be careful not to put the Lord to the test. Such an attitude, as I'm saying, is something that we should avoid and that brings us to the 
final example or result of evil desires of some of the Israelites of the Exodus generation that died in the desert. The fault of the evil desires that some of the Israelites of Exodus generation desired or were guilty that led to their death is grumbling against the Lord and against Moses. That's the fault. Grumbling against the Lord and against Moses. It is this evil that all believers as represented by the Corinthians are commanded to avoid. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 10 that we're starting, he says and do not grumble and do not grumble. Now commentators are divided regarding the incident in the Old Testament the apostle had in mind when he issued this command and do not grumble. Now some commentators think the apostle was thinking of the grumbling of the Israelites after they received the discouraging report of the time spies sent to explore the land of Canaan that is recorded in Numbers chapter 14 that we'll get to shortly. Others think that the apostle had in mind those who grumbled against Moses because of God's judgment against Korah and his followers reported still in, the, in Numbers uh, chapter 16. That also will get to shortly. Nonetheless, it seems to me that the apostle was probably concerned with the entire grumbling of the Israelites in the desert as we will explore shortly. So anyway, the Corinthians and so all of us believers are commanded to avoid grumbling as again in the command of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 10. And do not grumble. The apostle used the Greek form of the command he used in verse 7. But not in verses 8 and 9. Now in, verse, uh, in verses 8 and 9, the apostle used an exhortation in which he encouraged the Corinthians to join him in the action mentioned in these two verses verses 8 and 9. Now the form he used in verse 10 that is the same really as in verse 7 may imply that the Corinthians might be guilty of the vice reference and so he wanted them to stop it right away. In other words that there is crumbling among them and he wants us to stop. Now the vice or evil that the apostle wants the Corinthians and so all believers to avoid is grumbling against God and those in spiritual leadership. The word grumble is translated from a, a Greek word that may mean to whisper, to whisper. That is to express oneself in low tones of affirmation as it is used to describe what a Jewish crowd did about Jesus 
as we read in John chapter 7 verse 32. John chapter 7 verse 32. John chapter 7 verse 32. It is, the Pharisees had a crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent uh, temple guards to arrest him. Now the word may mean to complain, to complain about someone as some religious leaders did also about Jesus Christ. As we read in Luke chapter 5 verse 30. Luke chapter 5 verse 30. It is but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So here the word is translated complained. In our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 10, it means to grumble, understood as a form of rebellious discontent. That involves wallowing in self-pity as reflected in the complaints of the Israelites that they made against God and Moses during their wandering in the desert. The Israelites of Exodus generation did this in several locations that we now need to consider to learn something about their grumbling. The first record of grumbling of the Israelites of the Exodus generation involves lack of water that occurred wise, lack of water. The first grumbling about water occurred in the desert of Shur. Not too long after they observed the Lord divide the Red Sea. So they passed on dry land and after they joined Moses in the praise of God for what he did for them as recorded in Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 24. Exodus chapter 15, and hold on to Exodus. I'm going to stay there for some time. So hold on to Exodus. Exodus chapter 15. Verses 22 to 24. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water because it was bitter. This is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Now there is a sense 
the Israelites seem to have grown accustomed to complaining bitterly when things do not go their way. Before the Lord divided the Red Sea, and because of the Egyptian army that was marching towards them, when they left Egypt, they complained that Moses should have left them in Egypt instead of leading them out only to be slaughtered by the Egyptians as we read in Exodus chapter 14 verses 11 through 12. Exodus chapter 14 verse 11 reads, They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Then we said to you, in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now the grumbling or complaint of the Israelites seem to have been because of their slavery experience. Now they groaned and certainly complain to one another about the experiences since it is their groaning that went before God as stated in Exodus chapter 2 verse 23. Exodus chapter 2 verse 23. It is, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. So the Lord was gracious to them in that he responded to their groaning and complaining. Probably to each other or in a general sense to no one. So God responded by sending Moses to rescue them from slavery. As the Lord communicated to him according to Exodus chapter 3 verses 7 through 10. Exodus Chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. He reads, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come now to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and special land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Terizites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now, the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, Israel's leaders 
were pleased when they heard that the Lord was so concerned about them and about their plight, as we read in Exodus chapter 4, verse 31. Exodus chapter 4, verse 31. It is, and they believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So one then wonders why the people who were pleased that God was concerned about them would have complained in the manner they did to Moses about lack of drinking water unless their leaders, of course, were not involved in the grumbling. Furthermore, the Israelites had witnessed the Lord performed the miracle of dividing the Red Sea. Therefore, they should really have realized that the one who divided the Red Sea could provide them water in the desert. They should have realized that. But this was not the case. See what God did. They saw plenty of water. He dried them, kind of opened up, dried a part of it. So they go in. And then a few days later, he hit them with the problem of no water to see what they're going to remember. And that's what we have here. So, they had some problem. Anyway, so you think they would have said, okay, well, the Lord who did that, he can provide us with water. But as I said, that was not the case. Instead, they complained and made remarks in a way to cause problem or to blame Moses for their plight. It is not that they should not have requested Moses to do something about lack of water that they faced, but it is the manner in which they did it that was wrong. That their attitude was wrong is implied in their question of Exodus chapter uh, 15 that I mentioned, you don't have to go back there, but verse 24 where it says, what are we to drink? What are we to drink? Now it is true that Moses is their leader, but they should have recognized that the Lord appointed him to the office that he held. Therefore, it would have been more appropriate for them to request Moses to pray to the Lord to provide them with water instead of taking a tone with Moses that indicates their dissatisfaction or, or blaming him for the difficulty they faced. So my point is that if they had different approach for tabling their need of water before Moses, they would not have been Guilty of grumbling. So anyway, another occasion when the Israelites grumbled or complained because of lack of water is when they got to Refidim, Refidim, as recorded in Exodus 17 verses 1 through 3.
Exodus 17 verses 1 to 3. It is the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to test? But the people were tested for water, there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and last stock die of thirst? Now this grumbling of the Israelites is indeed uncalled for, since they had seen how the Lord provided them water when they were in the desert of shore. However, as we stated, because they have grown accustomed to complaining, they grumbled instead of simply telling Moses to pray to the Lord to provide them water. Now their wrong attitude is reflected in their question of this Exodus 17. Look at verse 3 again. It says, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and at last of die of thirst? So I'm saying that instead of the question that implied that they blame Moses, they should have stated their needs in a tone that does not imply that they were blaming Moses. So it was because of their tone or approach that they were charged of being guilty of grumbling. Now the second record of the grumbling of the Israelites of the Exodus generation involves food. The situation with them seemed to be that they ate for some time the food that they brought out of Egypt, as we may gather from the information given in Exodus chapter 12, verse 39. Exodus. Whoever started and reads, with the dough they have brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and they now have time to prepare food for themselves. So they had some food which they cooked as they were in the desert and that ran out. And so once they ran out of food, they began to grumble against Moses for lack of food as recorded in Exodus chapter 16 verses 1 through 3. And hold on to that. Uh, Exodus 16 verse 1 reads, The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin which is between Elimus Sinai on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. Now in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, 
If only we had died by the lost son in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So it is interesting that because of lack of food, the Israelites prefer to be enslaved than suffer lack of food. They forgot their groaning because of slavery simply because they have encountered a problem of lack of food. Now that notwithstanding, God graciously provided them food still in that Exodus 16, look at verses 4 and 5. He says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will taste them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So, that's a record of them grumbling about food. So, we went from water to food. The third record of grumbling of the Israelites of the Exodus generation involves the report of the spies that Moses sent to gather information about the land of Canaan. Now, ten, ten of the twelve spies Moses sent gave a mixed report of the richness of the land of, uh, that they have applied for, for, for their agricultural activities and how powerful the, the inhabitants were, implying that they were unable to occupy the land by defeating its inhabitants. As we read in Numbers chapter 13, verses 27 through 29. Numbers 13. Numbers chapter 13. Verses 27 through 29. Verse 27 of Numbers chapter 13 reads, They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Enoch there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amoratites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. These are two men, Caleb and Joshua were men of faith. The others were looking at sight. Verse 31 said, but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, 
the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Enoch, uh, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So they say, okay, sure, it's a good place. He has everything the Lord said it would be. But we can do that. Because these guys are so tall and big and this, and we look like grasshoppers. So that's what happens when you go, when you approach anything from a human perspective, instead of going by faith. In faith, those two men say, yeah, they are big, they're tall, yeah. But we have God on our side. So it doesn't matter what their size is. Anyway, the bad report that Israel received from a turn of the spies in caused them to grumble against Moses and Aaron, as we read in Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. It is that night all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taking us plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now the fourth record of the grumbling of the Israelites of the Exodus generation against Moses involved the death of those who rebelled against Moses' authority under the leadership of Korah so the Lord killed the rebels. Now the, this led to the Israelite community to grumble against Moses and Aaron. As we read in Numbers chapter 16 verse 41. Now the background of course is these people, they have uh, Korah led rebellion against Moses. Now, they complained and they, they challenged his authority, really. And God said, okay, I'm going to solve this problem. So he opened up the ground and swallowed them. Now, the Israelites, they saw that. Now, instead of saying, man, we better watch ourselves, they now start blaming Moses. It's his fault. And you see, that's what people do today. They don't look at what cause, whatever it is. They are only looking at the result and they blame whom they shouldn't blame. So that's what was going on here. They blame Moses. Look at what they say in Numbers 16 verse 41. The next day the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the lost people, they said. But they didn't talk about what they did. That's what we function today. Look at they kill, you killed God's people. He didn't say, now they did this. That is now just the result of what they saw. So, 
That is part of their complaining. So, our consideration then of the instances of Israel's grumbling indicates that grumbling of the Israelites involved discontent complaining about every and anything. It involves self-pity, not being satisfied with what God has, uh, uh, has done for them, despite having uh, God uh, having demonstrated his power to them several times. They still were malcontent. They were in self-pity. They were not satisfied. They keep complaining, whining. Now, in, in any case, the grumbling of the Israelites against Moses and the Lord resulted in the death of some of them, as we read in the passage we are studying in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 10. It says, verse 10 says, and were killed by the destroying angel. Now literally, the Greek reads, and were destroyed by the destroyer. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now the phrase, destroying angel of the NIV is interpretative, although a good one. Now this is because we have a Greek now that appears only here in the Greek New Testament, what we call harpax, ligament, that the Greek word appears once, but it means destroyer. Now it is probably that when the apostle used the word, the Greek word trans- uh, that means destroyer, that he was thinking of the concept portrayed in the Old Testament scripture where death or destruction was carried out by an angel that God sent for a specific purpose of bringing death. Now in the night of Israel's uh, departure from Egypt, God sent an angel to kill all the firstborn of the Egyptians, as we read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 23. Exodus chapter 12, verse 23. It is When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. So here the destroyer is an angel. Now when David ordered the ill advised census, the Lord brought judgment on the inhabitants of Jerusalem that led to the death of 70,000 people as recorded in First Chronicles chapter 21 verse 14. First Chronicles Hold on to that passage I'll pick the next verse too. First Chronicles chapter 21 Verse 14. 
It is. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel. And 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. Now this date was brought about by an angel. That the Lord sent to carry out the judgment of death. As these men, uh, the death of these men. So that's what we read. Look at see where we are in First Chronicles 21. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough. Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was uh, then standing in the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusites. So during the reign of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib threatened to attack Jerusalem. However, the king sought God's help so that the army of the Assyrians were decimated by death of their soldiers. Now this death was brought about by an angel that the Lord sent to destroy many of the Assyrian army as we read in Second Chronicles chapter 32 verse 21. Second Chronicles chapter thirty two verse twenty one. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the leaders and the officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons cut him down with a sword. Now when Herod took the glory that belongs to God, it was an angel that was sent to bring about his death. As indicated in Acts chapter 12 verses 21 uh, through 23. Acts Acts chapter 12 verses 21 through 23 It is on the appointed day Herod wearing his royal robes sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people they shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, in other words, he stole his glory. And the Lord has vowed that he will never share his glory with anyone. That's one of those reasons I say, when people make, make comments to you, a compliment, you be very careful that you defect that back. To God and not to yourself. Immediately, verse 23 says, Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and 
died. So it is probably because of these examples that we uh, that the standard Greek uh, English lexicon of Bao, Danka, Ab, and Gingri indicated that a destroyer in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 10 refers to the destroying angel that carried out divine sentence of punishment. So they suggest then that perhaps the destroyer could be Satan himself. Now this is possible since it appears that God has uh, may give Satan power of death as we can learn from the restriction put on him by the Lord when he tasted Job in Job chapter 2 verse 6. Job chapter 2 verse 6. Job chapter 2 verse 6. It is the Lord said to Satan, very well, then he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. That means God gave him, may give him power of death. Now this truth, of course, of giving him power of death is, is further uh, supported by the assertion of Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 reads, Since his children have flesh and blood, he too shall in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. So you see, Satan has power. God has granted him power of death. Now this aside, it seems though that it is this interpretation of a destroying angel that is followed by the translators of the NIV, although the Greek really says the destroyer. Now be that as it may, the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul indicates that those who grumbled against Moses and the Lord were destroyed or killed by the destroyer. That is an angel in the verbal phrase of First uh, Corinthians 10 where we are studying. Verse 10 says, and were killed by the destroying angel. Now the verbal phrase actually implies that it was probably the same destroying angel that was used in the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians that was used in carrying out the death uh, punishment of those Israelites who died because of grumbling against Moses and the Lord. So there were a few cases of death associated with grumbling against Moses or the Lord that were reported. The time spies Moses sent uh, to Canaan that gave bad report that caused Israelites to, uh, to grumble. They also died according to Numbers chapter 14 verses 37 through 38. Numbers 14 
Now you see here the, the issue is the men cause trouble with their false reporting. In the sense, it's not that they, what they reported was correct, but it's the spin they put on it. That's where the problem was. They saw big people, they saw this, yes. But they commented as to how they weren't going to uh, conquer them. That comment is what roused up the people. And so, God pronounced judgment on them, those who rebel against Moses, but he also pronounced judgment on those who actually caused the problem, who gave the report. That's the, what we uh, see here in Numbers 14, verse 37. Says, the men responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. So they didn't get away. Now, they, those what they caused brought more problems, but they themselves didn't get away. It says, of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. Now, all those who grumbled against Moses because of the bad reports eventually died in the desert. Every one of them as part of God's punishment on them for grumbling against Moses. In Numbers chapter 14 verses 26 through 35. Numbers chapter 14 26 through 35. It is, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I had you say. In this, very, in this desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census, and who has grumble against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home except Caleb son of Jephna and Joshua son of Nun. As for your children that you said will be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in, the, in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year, for each of the 40 days you explore the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded against me. They will meet their end in this desert. They, here they will die. Now those who murmured against Moses when they rebelled died also they were punished by death. According to Numbers 
16 verse 16, 6, uh, 49. Now those who, are, who rebelled, here it says, but 14,700 people died for the plague, in addition to those who had died because of Korah. See, Korah died, and people complained and whined, and God killed more of them. So as we have stated them, the Holy Spirit tells us, through the apostle, that a destroying angel was responsible for the death of all who grumbled against Moses. So as we indicated previously, it is possible that the destroying angel was the same one that killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. Now the fate of these grumblers should warn us to be careful about grumbling against each other as per the command of James chapter 5 verse 9. James chapter 5 verse 9. This is what God says. That we have to be very careful as you grumble against one another. He said, don't grumble against each other. Brothers, or you will be judged. Now the thing that amazes me is how little we believers actually equate what we are going through with our spiritual life. How little we do that. There are so many things that we get wrong and don't realize. When the consequences start coming back, we don't associate whatever it is that we're going through with what it is. Because here say, if you grumble against each other, you'll be judged. So you ask yourself, how many times have I grumbled against my fellow believer? That's, you have to answer that. Anyway, because of this, you should be careful that you are not in the habit of complaining because you are discontent with every and anything. Be careful that you do not forget God's goodness towards you to cause you to become dissatisfied because you encounter some difficulties in life. Furthermore, you should endeavor not to be one of those who have the attitude that no one is correct but you. So that you find yourself complaining bitterly about your spiritual leaders, for example. So, remember the message that we have been considering. As if you grumble against your spiritual leaders. Here's that message. That's enjoyment of God's blessings under a good spiritual leader will not shield you from his judgment if you displease him. So, learn to be content. Learn not to be a grumbler complaining about any and everything. There are just people who are that way. That is part of your sinful nature. But you have to go over that through growth through the word of God. So that you don't become a person. You're always complaining. You're always criticizing. That's all you do. And no one else is correct but you. 
So you have to know that. That you are setting yourself up for judgment. And we as believers should avoid that. With that, we will continue our study next week. Let's pray. As we end our study this morning, there may be someone here or someone listening over the internet that if you die now, you go straight to hell. Because you don't have life in you. Because you have not believed in Jesus Christ yet. You may have said, I've heard about him. Or you can say, oh yeah, he's he's Savior. But really, you haven't believed in him. And you don't have life yet. If you're such a person, we want you to know that God's love for you is beyond measure. That's why, to demonstrate that love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who left the glories of heaven to come down to this planet to take on a human body. Now that love is beyond my understanding. It is hard to conceive of the love of Jesus Christ that he could leave all the glories of heaven to take on human form, to allow himself to be spat upon, to be slapped, done all kinds of mistreatment because he has so much love for you that you don't go to hell. And that's why he took all those abuse for your purpose so that he can get you eternal life. So, when he was tortured, he didn't cry. When he was crucified, he didn't cry. But when my sins and your sins were poured on the Son of God, that was so unbearable that he let out that cry. Eloi, Eloi, Lamashabakatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken that you may have life. He was forsaken that you may spend eternity with God. So believe in him and you will escape God's coming judgment. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will challenge us to be people who do not test you unnecessarily and also to be people who are not filled with grumbling all our lives. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen.